Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Afghanistan thing is seen as a Soviet expansionist move. And um, it was just mind blowing to me to read. Um, you know, Zvigny Brzezinski, who was the very hardline, hawkish, Cold War national security advisor Jimmy Carter had, um, speaking of ambiguity, his secretary of state was basically like, you know, almost like a pacifist in a lot of ways, Cyrus Vance. Um, Zvigny Brzezinski was absolutely convinced that this was, they were establishing a beachhead to uh, invade Iran and take over the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, this was such a terrifying prospect that, um, Jimmy Carter was a presented an option to bomb the passages between Iran and Afghanistan with nuclear weapons, right? But again, very Manichaean. And immediately public opinion shifts away from this um, kind of more detente-based, human rights-based foreign policy. And next thing you know, Jimmy Carter is promising a um, 20% increase in America's defense budget if he wins a second term. Um, there's Reagan land right there. There are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. One day, all of the facts in about 30 years' time will be published. When genocide has been carried out in this country almost with impunity, and when it is near to completion, people talk about intervention. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Hello, welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Gaunt. And I'm Jason Fields. America is perhaps more conservative today than it's ever been. For some on the right, Obama, Biden, and Clinton look like socialists. For people on the left, they look like moderate Republicans. There's a reason for both of those views that steeped in America's recent past. U.S. culture was shaped by a suave and smooth-talking president who promised we could be a beacon of hope for the world and a shining city on a hill. Here to talk about what happened is Rick Perlstein. Pearlstein is a returning guest and the author of the new book, Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. The book is, among other things, the story of how a Southern evangelical Democrat paved the way for a divorced actor from California to ascend to the presidency and shape America's destiny. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Jason. Okay, so... Your books aren't really biographies in the traditional sense, but rather these cultural histories of the country as reflected by these specific leaders. Um, so with that in mind, what is the psychic space of Reagan land? 
That's right. So in the in the um, preface for Nixon Land, which was my second book, I say that my subject is yeah not Nixon, but it's actually the the voter who in 1964 voted for Lyndon Johnson because to do otherwise seemed crazy. But the same guy in 1972 votes for the Republican, Richard Nixon, instead of George McGovern because to do otherwise seems crazy, right? So uh, what is the psychic, political, cultural, social, economic space that kind of creates the mentality of the country that embraces these leaders? And what is the fact that the fact of that embrace say about the transformation of the basically the the country in a much broader sense than just its politics. And uh, I would say that Reagan land uh, represents uh, a psychic space in which um, the reckoning that America, the moral reckoning, I would say that America had begun uh, after Watergate and after losing its first war and after losing its sense of permanent economic dominance that came from the Arab oil embargo in 1973 and the rise of stagflation um, kind of withered away uh, under the appeal of this man who um, basically was arguing that America is God's chosen nation and that anyone who says otherwise uh, is in some subtle but real way not quite American at all. Um, I, of course, use a lot of popular culture in these books. And uh, I would say the most um, kind of um, sharp way of drawing this comparison is to compare the kind of movies that were galvanizing everyone's attention in the early and mid seventies. And that we're actually doing kind of gangbusters box office that were full of adult themes, you know, moral ambiguity, uh, critique of powerful institutions, movies like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or the Godfather or a uh, taxi driver. Um, and how uh, those were superseded in the cultural imagination by movies like Star Wars, which uh, George Lucas quite specifically said he had designed as a children's movie, a movie to teach kids that uh, there are hard and fast lines between good and evil. And what came to mind when you framed the question was something actually that's not in the book, I had a much longer discussion of Superman that uh, I published as an article uh, in in the uh, Washington Spectator. Um, And in Star Wars, um, you have these kind of scrappy guerrilla warriors uh, who are on the run, who are, you know, undermanned, uh, underarmed, uh, and they're fighting this uh, empire. It's called the Empire, obviously, that has a Death Star, these massive weapons uh, that's, you know, colonizing the rest of the world. And the striking thing about that political scenario is that only two years earlier, you know, America makes this final retreat to Vietnam, and we were fighting a band of scrappy underground guerrilla warriors who were underarmed. It was the Viet Cong. And we were the empire, right? We were the Death Star. 
you know, our death-dealing juggernauts like the USS Midway, right? And one of the pleasures that Star Wars afforded the nation was the ability to imagine ourselves as the underdog uh, in this kind of battle between good and evil, right? Precisely inverted reality. And you see that in a lot of Vietnam War films of the time. And as I put it in the book, people were willing to vote with their dollars at the box office for Reagan-like movies before they were willing to vote for a Ronald Reagan at the ballot box. So that's the psychic space I'm narrating. That's the transformation I'm narrating. And do we know what Reagan himself thought of Star Wars? Oh, he loved it. (laughs) Yes. And I say Ronald Reagan, Star Wars was a very Ronald Reagan style movie. Of course, uh, years later, his space shield was named the Star Wars program, right? Complete fantasy, just like Star Wars. And uh, we can also surmise that Star Wars really wasn't a Jimmy Carter sort of movie. You know, Jimmy Carter, like Reinhold Niebuhr, he liked, you know, moral ambiguity. And he, he was not a black and white kind of guy, you know. Uh, he, he loved Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, quote that, you know, the aim of politics is to establish justice in a fallen world. You know, I don't even think Ronald Reagan would be able to wrap his mind over that concept. But it's a very it's a very Christian concept. That this yes. is the foreign world that we live in. Yes, fallen. Yes, yes. It's a certain kind of Christianity, but not the kind of Christianity uh, represented by, say, a Pat Robertson. You know, who's uh, you know a character in this book, one of the Christian ministers who abandons Jimmy Carter because uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, has all the wrong positions on things like uh, gay rights and feminism. He says that God, who he apparently knows intimately. Uh, would much rather have um, stable government under a crook than unstable government under an honest man. So it's basically saying, you know, um, Richard Nixon, you know, the reactionary is better than Jimmy Carter, the uh, liberal liberal who's, you know, letting uh, sexual iniquity into the gates of the American family. I feel like just at the moment... Uh, and I'm going to throw a couple data points at you. We have Reagan on the brain too. Hmm. Uh, your book is out, obviously. Um, do you, speaking of pop culture, do you mess with video games at all? Is this the um, the the Call of War thing? Uh, Are you talking about? Well, not that? just that. There's so there's Call of Duty Cold War is oh. coming out this holiday season, yeah. in which Reagan personally puts the player on uh, to go do uh, Black Ops missions. Abroad. I saw the trailer for that, and I definitely have some thoughts about that. What's the other one? Uh, the other one, this is really interesting. Uh, I'm playing it right now. It's a game called Wasteland 3, which takes place in a post-apocalyptic world that's set um, uh, in, like, as if the nukes had launched in the 80s. Uh, and there is uh-huh. a faction of people that you have to deal with who worship Reagan as a god king. They call him a, a, a oh. god president. And really? they have an AI that's this AI that's essentially been fed, uh, just been fed his speeches. And it's a robot uh-huh. that just kind of repeats things that he says and they work and they worship it. Oh, I could write that computer program. Yeah. And it, it's, it's so fascinating. What, how does the war, how does the nuclear war start? Is it like, kind of like there was Abel Archer where there was a nuclear exercise that causes an accidental nuclear explosion? He, yeah. It's, it, it was Russia and America. And it's one of these things where it's a little bit ambiguous and lost to, uh, lost to history as to exactly who threw the right. first blow. 
Um, right. But the, That's probably a likely scenario. Yeah. yeah. The Gippers is what they call themselves. They tell the story that uh, Reagan survived and then wandered into the wilderness and uploaded his consciousness into this robot. And now they are the stewards of it. Um, I'm going to have to uh, check that out. Yeah, That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, they have, uh, there's a female uh, priest class called the Nancys that take care of everything. It's <laughs> it, yeah. Is it ridiculous or is it kind of compelling? It's uh, both. I would say that it is. Um, it is so over the top and surreal. Yeah. Uh, like the Watchmen or something. Yeah, but it, it has to be to to kind of drive home the absurdity of some of the stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will comment that, like, you know, growing up in the early 80s, we were just absolutely terrified there was going to be a nuclear holocaust. It was just completely a part of everyday life. So I can't really comment on that. But on the Call of Duty, I did see the trailer. And I've kind of like, that's one of the things I've had in the back of my mind. I've been super busy promoting the book. But I, w- I w- just to write about, if, if only on social media, because that's the fascinating thing about the trailer is it really is, you know, the world of... Uh, popular culture and video games really wrenching uh, the Overton window to the right in a very disturbing way in that this scenario is you're kind of down in the situation room and there's a guy who, you know, uh, sounds just like James Baker and there's a, you know, um, and uh, there's a guy who looks like Robert Redford with a scar in his face and he's the super spy. And uh, they're, they're talking about some, um, um, Russian spy who is responsible for everything bad in the world. Perseus. And yeah, Perseus. And they're like, we need to undertake an illegal mission to wipe him out. And are you willing to do it? And of course the steely Robert Redford guy says, of course, and then Ronald Reagan walks in. And if I recall correctly, there's someone says, well, of course this is illegal. Uh, are you going to authorize this mission? And Ronald Reagan says, you know, it's the fate of the universe. You know, who cares about the laws, right? Uh, so it's this popular culture rewriting of something that was literally a fantasy, which was the idea that the Soviet Union was going to somehow conquer America through Central America, which is why we needed to break, uh, directly break laws uh, passed by Congress in order to arm these people with money skimmed from illegal arms sales to Iran that didn't even work because whenever we would pay off, uh, pay off these people with missiles in order to free a hostage, they would just take another hostage. So it was a moral, political, constitutional fiasco that led to, you know, maybe at this point a million corpses in Central America because of generations of civil wars being turned into this Star Wars-like narrative in which, you know, the moral rightness is kind of, uh, wrenched into a way that can't even be questioned. So I'm very disturbed by that. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by that. And hopefully um, people who read my book will, um, will, uh, will, uh, I don't know what you do with a video game now, put it in the, put it in the uh, trash bin of your computer. I don't know. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Call of Duty is so uh, wildly popular. It's going to make millions and millions of dollars. Um, oh, well, maybe I can, you know, give them a run for their money with this podcast. So another thing I think is interesting in the book uh, is this is so much about the Carter administration, right? It's about how the mm-hmm. Carter administration sets up this, right. this Reagan world, uh, Reagan land that you're talking about. And in many ways here, Reagan kind of defines himself in opposition to Carter and us politics in general, right? What was it about Carter um, 
Mm-hmm. So I always remember my father telling me, father, Vietnam veteran, uh, mm-hmm. always kind of telling me that Carter was a good man and a terrible president. Um, mm-hmm. Why do we have this cultural memory of him? And how did Reagan kind of, uh, I don't know if exploit is the right word, but take advantage of it? Yeah, I mean, I would say my judgment as not a foreign policy expert is that when it comes to actual foreign policy, uh, he actually wasn't a terrible president. Um, and that as a scholar of Jimmy Carter, as a person and a politician, he was not really that good a man. <laughs> uh, so we can kind of get into that. It maybe has a little more to do with the, the domestic stuff than the foreign policy stuff, but certainly um, their perception was there and perception can become reality in politics. So you got to really start at the beginning of what Jimmy Carter ran as and why he won Right. He, you know, if you buy the hardcover of the book, you can, you know, see the, the photographs I chose. And one of them is a poster from the Democratic Convention with Jimmy Carter with a giant beard and a robe saying uh, JC can redeem America. So this idea that um, Jimmy Carter could wash America in the blood of the lamb after the, the serial uh, sinning of Vietnam and Watergate was just a huge part of what he was up to. And there was very little that he offered specifically when it came to policy. It was all an appeal made through the language of symbolism, whether it was that he was this humble peanut farmer who wore a flannel shirt or a guy who wasn't a lawyer, who was not a professional politician. That was his big applause line. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a politician. Right. And in terms of foreign policy, uh, it was um, something that was, uh, articulated in a very famous speech at Notre Dame in May of 1977 that America's foreign policy would be reoriented uh, in terms of human rights and made the very striking formulation that the problem with American foreign policy was uh, that we uh, allied with any dictator that you know we believe advanced our interests no matter how you know, corrupt or repressive they were. And... Um, very much in people's minds at that time because of the 1975 Senate church committee investigations were the crimes of the CIA and the fact that they'd spied on Americans and the fact that they'd assassinated foreign leaders. And one of the first um, bureaucratic acts he did was to um, cut the CIA's um, what do you call it? The, the part of the, the, the underground, you know, kind of um, uh, covert, covert missions, covert, covert staff in half. He uh, nominated as his CIA director, um, uh, Ted Sorensen, the former Kennedy speechwriter, who had been a conscientious objector in World War II. The right wing shot that down. He was very committed to arms control and put on the table, the elimination of nuclear weapons, all these sorts of things. And uh, uh, basically um, Made, ar- made an argument that America should not project force over the world as it had and was talking about, um, you know, removing America's troops from, from, from South Korea, just to, to give one example. And, um, you know, over the course of, and then another, another great example is um, he continued the negotiations, no, negotiations and took them to the finish line starting that started with Lyndon Johnson to return the Panama, Panama Canal, uh, the Panama Canal and the Panama Canal Zone to Panama. So Panama Canal 
being this last vestige of kind of high 19th century imperialism. And, uh, you know, the right wing was absolutely apoplectic about it. It was one of their big organizing crusades. Uh, he won that fight, which is one of the things that makes him you know, such an impressive figure when it comes to foreign policy. But he wasted so much political capital in that he wasn't able to get anything done in terms of arm control, arms control. Um, but his timing was terrible, right? Um, basically, um, the bill, America's bill, uh, for having uh, enthroned uh, the Shah of Iran uh, after uh, Mossadegh in Iran nationalized the oil supply in 1953 in a joint operation between the CIA and, and, and British intelligence um, inspired uh, a successful revolution that brought this theocrat uh, Ayatollah Khomeini to power. One of the fascinating things about that was that basically every party involved in Iran uh, basically everyone except for the three theocrats in Iran presumed that uh, either the secular liberals or uh, the Marxists that were part of the revolutionary coalition were, would prevail. One of my big influences in this, by the way, is a book by um, um, Carol, uh, um, Strange Rebels, 1979 and the Birth of the 21st Century. And, and it, 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 it's a book about Iran and Afghanistan and uh, the liberalization of the economy in China and Margaret Thatcher. And in all these cases, all the experts who are supposed to know everything think all these things are impossible, right? There's no sense within the security world or the intelligence world that political Islam has any purchase at all. So that happens in February of 1979. And um, as a lot of people do not know, there was actually uh, hostages taken in the American embassy on Valentine's Day in 1979, the same day as America's ambassador in Afghanistan was assassinated, probably by the Soviet Union uh, in February 1979. And, of course, the revolution becomes bloodier and bloodier and bloodier. And in this fascinating moment of the tail wagging the dog, a group of militant students, most of them engineering students, um, uh, are having a debate over taking over an embassy. They, they, the first idea is to take over the Soviet embassy <laughs> because you know, the Soviet Union is just as evil to them as, 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 as the great state in the United States. They, for various reasons, decide to take over the American embassy uh, with, as their model, the 1960s student sit-ins of, 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 you know, uh, university administration buildings that they learned as students sent to America to become sort of the secular elite of the Shah's, you know, kind of white revolution. And uh, they become radicalized, radicalized Muslims. And... um, Basically, through a comedy of errors, they end up holding these hostages permanently. Um, at first, the Ayatollah Khomeini is horrified, uh, but then he sees the enormous publicity value. It's very much a, a news event, a media event, and Iran uh, sets up a 24-hour television feed from the gate of the embassy, and that turns it into this um, global melodrama. And then at the end of the year of 1979, um, the story in Afghanistan is this, also this bizarre Cold War comedy of errors in which uh, a Marxist government uh, 
takes over in Afghanistan. There's this faction fight between these sort of moderate Marxists who are allied with the Soviet Union and these sort of Stalinists who um, basically want to institute a reign of terror in Afghanistan. Uh, The extremists win. The Soviets, again, are horrified, right? Um, But uh, there's this fascinating, very ambiguous debate within the Kremlin over what they should do, very similar to the debates within the American security establishment about Vietnam. Uh, There's this kind of reluctant invasion. And the Reaganite part of this and the part that makes it so frustrating for Jimmy Carter's view of the world and how American foreign policy should work is that these, these events are both interpreted in very Manichaean terms, right? So the hostage is being taken um, is um, seen as um, this blow to America's masculinity itself, right? And the Afghanistan thing is seen as a Soviet expansionist move. And um, it was just mind blowing to me to read um, you know, Zvignu Brzezinski, who was the very hardline, hawkish, Cold War national security advisor Jimmy Carter had, um, speaking of ambiguity, his secretary of state was basically like, you know, almost like a pacifist in a lot of ways, Cyrus Vance. Um, Zvignu Brzezinski was absolutely convinced that this was, they were establishing a beachhead to uh, invade Iran and take over the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, this was such a terrifying prospect that... Um, Jimmy Carter was presented an option to bomb the passages between Iran and Afghanistan with nuclear weapons, right? But again, very Manichaean. And immediately public opinion shifts away from this um, kind of more detente-based, human rights-based foreign policy. And next thing you know, Jimmy Carter is promising a um, 20% increase in America's defense budget if he wins a second term. Um, There's Reagan land right there. Well, it does. Uh, the one of the there's so many questions I have based on all of that. Uh, one thing I do want to highlight uh, that I didn't know this when I and I learned it from your book is it's really interesting. Um, the press doesn't help at all uh, in the way that the the hostage crisis in particular is covered doesn't help, especially when you have hostages kind of being let out piecemeal and then going on television. And saying things that sound a lot like what people remember from the 60s, right? They sound like weathermen, right? They're talking about evil American empire and, uh, you know, the global capital, global capitalism as this, as this evil. And well, they're also telling the truth about what America's role in, 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 in destroying, you know, the, the prospects where democracy are in Iran. Absolutely. Right? But it looks to, but it looks to the average viewer at home as if they're being brainwashed. And I believe that you even right. said that, that one of the news stations was saying said uh, falsely that people were being tied to chairs and forced through 23 hours of of brainwashing, right? Yeah, there was um, – I mean, I think there was some – the thing is, you got to remember, these guys were like like kids, you know? I mean, they look like – you know, like they look like high school students. They were college students, you know, and they had, had no idea what they were doing. And, you know, there were these ham-handed attempts to kind of, um, to, you know, engage in torture slash enhanced interrogation of the people that were revealed as CIA agents, right? I mean, uh, there was lots of conspiracy theories. There was presumption that, you know, the place was marbled with CIA agents, i.e. the nation of Iran, when there were really only like five in the entire country. Um, 
but you refer to the media stuff, this immediately became this sentimentalized narrative of American innocence defiled. And, you know, you can say a lot of things about America's policies in Iran, but, you know, innocence is not one of them, right? But, you know, one of the extraordinary confluences that that played into this story was um, this guy, Rune Arledge, right? Who was the, 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 the head of... Um, ABC News was elevated to the head of the news division simultaneously while he was the head of his previous job, the sports division. And he basically is the first person to try and turn the evening television news, which had traditionally been a loss leader for the networks, basically their, their bid to say we're serious public spirited institutions and we deserve our uh, free and privileged access to this public trust, the community airwaves uh, turns it into like a circus and he's the guy who invented wide, wild, wide world of sports. You know, he's the guy who invented Monday Night Football. He's the one who imposed Howard Cosell on a, you know, uh, 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 innocent America, right? And, you know, one of the last scenes in the book is when the hostages are freed, you know, on, on, on Ronald Reagan's inauguration day. And he tells the producer to um, cue swelling orchestra music in the background and the guy refuses He's like that's ridiculous so he gets his sports producer to do it instead and he turns the um the whole hostage drama into a soap opera uh and that really limits uh jimmy carter's uh freedom of movement i point out that in 1968 uh an almost equal number of hostages were taken by uh north korea when they captured an American merchant vessel, the Pueblo, and that like almost got like no news coverage at all. The only people who cared about about it were the John Birch Society. I point out that um, during, I think it was during World War II, um, uh, the Chinese communists uh, uh, took a bunch of Americans hostage in the embassy, and I couldn't find any news coverage of that at all. But because of the the, the medium became the message, because of the sentimentalization of TV and TV news. Um, I, you guys were probably around then. Uh, did you have a hostage pen pal? <laughs> well, actually, um, I mean, I remember Nightline going on the air. That was that was that was Runarledge too. They said the the, the, the Runarledge and, and ABC had been trying to find something to go head to head against uh, Johnny Carson, and uh, local stations would play like you know um, old mash reruns and stuff. And then Runarledge came up with the idea of having a nightly hostage wrap up, and that's what became Nightline. And uh, even like the the night he he produced the 1980 Winter Olympics, and Nightline became a commercial for the Olympics, and the Olympics became a, a commercial for Nightline. And the ribbons that were tied around people's trees and stuff, the yellow ribbons, the yellow ribbons from the popular song "Tie a Yellow Ribbon About the Old Old Tree." Yeah, and. Um, the the role of the families of the hostages um, was really fascinating. There's an amazing memoir uh, by one of the hostage wives and one of the hostages that they wrote jointly. And um, she wrote with this unbelievable searing eloquence about how much the sentimentalization, sentimentalization of the hostages' plight harmed them, right? And she tells a story about some crazy right-wing uh, radio host in New York City who got somehow got the phone number of the embassy 
you know, and started issuing threats to the, to the students, you know, and how like the, the government worked really hard to keep their names secret. But the New York Daily News, one of those sentimental tabloids in New York, printed the names of all the hostages with um, their um, faces, with their faces on them. And I talk about how, you know, the Thanksgiving night broadcast on ABC, you know, from a groaning table in, in, in Iowa of one of the hostage families that looked just like a Norman Rockwell painting. That's Reagan land too. And this stuff did also have real world, con- like not real world. It had domestic consequences as well, right? We, one of the things you highlight in the book is like what happened to Iranian embassies and Iranian people in America while all this was going on. Yes. Yeah. That was a real striking, striking part of my research. I mean, if you want to know where the feral energies that produce Trumpism came from, you know, just look at, the plight of Iranian students in the United States, some of them Iranian Americans, sometimes even citizens, uh, the vigilante violence. I depict um, a, basically an anti uh, Iranian riot in of all places, Beverly Hills uh, in which, you know, people are just being pummeled within an inch of their lives while the cops watch and cheer them on. You know, uh, I have a picture in the book of, you know, someone holding up a sign saying you know, Iranians go home. You know, the same thing happened to uh, the Cuban refugees from the Muriel Boatlift, right? That sort of nativist energies, that's Reagan land too. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be back after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for sticking with us. You are listening to Angry Planet. We are talking to Rick Perlstein about his new book, Reaganland. One thing I kind of want to set up is, can we talk about, there's a reason I feel, or there's a, there's many reasons. Obviously, the CIA is a big one. Uh, but there's reasons I think that a lot of animus in the Middle East was directed specifically towards Carter. Um, mm-hmm. And I put some of that around the Camp David Accords. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like what the reaction was like in the country and abroad to that? Right. Well, in, 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 in America, it was, it was, um, you know, celebrated as this great breakthrough, right? I mean, that's one of my childhood memories was being marched to the grade school auditorium to watch the signing of the peace treaty, you know, early in 1979. So basically Jimmy Carter, you know, as an evangelical Christian, um, was very, very interested in Israel, right? I mean, it was this kind of living presence in his life, in his imagination, in his, in his memoir, Why Not the Best. He, he has this very telling line in which he says um, his childhood was 
on a farm was on a farm that wasn't that different from a farm, you know, 2000 years earlier, you know, and, you know, he lives in this place where all the biblical names, you know, all the name, the place names are biblical. And so he kind of makes it as his big project to get Egypt and Israel at the table to, uh, you know, they've had um, an official state of war ever since the, the, the Israel, Israeli, Israeli Egypt war of 1973. And he handles this in a very sophisticated way. I mean, Jimmy Carter was really bad at politics um, when it came to dealing with like Congress and other politicians, but he was pretty good at diplomacy because he could kind of, when, when he could just kind of like um, come up with some sort of plan on his own, right. Uh, outside of any kind of political influence, he, he, he could really move the chess pieces around in a really sophisticated way. For example, he knew he needed buy-in from Saudi Arabia. You know, so he did this arms deal for Saudi Arabia that was a very tough fight that he got through the Senate uh, that basically um, secured the royal families um, as intermediaries uh, to, um, to the rest of the Arab world. And, you know, Nixon and Kissinger get all this credit for doing that kind of stuff when it comes to China. But really, this is what, what Carter was doing when, when, with, with regard to the Arab world in a really sophisticated way. And he gets them to Camp David and he keeps them there for two weeks. And um, there's a really wonderful text, um, 13 Days, by um, Robert Wright. Is it Robert Wright? No, I'm sorry. No, it's... Um, um, it's the guy who wrote the, the Scientology book. and uh, Lawrence Wright. Uh, the, yeah, Lawrence Wright. A right. Texan. And, you know, yeah, it's just, it's this hour-by-hour hour, uh, chronicle of how many times, you know, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat were ready to walk away from the table and Jimmy Carter's brilliance and steeliness in keeping them at the table... And, you know, they, they, they agree to this accord. The tragedy of the accord is they basically can only agree to it by putting the Palestinian issue, uh, to table the, the Palestinian issue indefinitely, right? Um, and it almost breaks apart, but he gets them back to agree uh, with a, some personal diplomacy from both, to both Egypt and Israel. And, yeah, like the consequences for this actually for, for, for Carter are a huge bump in his poll ratings, but it goes down almost immediately. So that's March of 1979. It's right on the, the cusp of the oil crisis in that spring and that summer. But internationally, um, th- this is terrible for, um, for Anwar Sadat, who really, um, much more than Menachem Begin, was, was um, the party who took the most courageous risks for peace. Anwar Sadat, of course, eventually was assassinated uh, as soon as he, he, he took the first initiative by visiting Israel, which was an extraordinary thing. And uh, when, um, when the plane, when Anwar Sadat's plane landed in the tarmac in November of Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, I don't remember which, um, in uh, November of 1977, Israeli commandos were at the ready, snipers were at the ready, because there was this there was this fear that this was actually kind of like a Trojan horse that the plane was going to open and, 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 and his Egyptian commandos were going to come out firing. Right. So, but this was, um, uh, terrible for America's image in the middle East because, um, all these, um, Arab potentates, of course, uh, bought all their domestic loyalty by scapegoating Israel for all the troubles in the world. Uh, and, uh, it also uh, certainly, you know, my dad went to his grave insisting that Jimmy Carter was an anti-Semite, right? 
Um, because maybe it was because of all the terrible things he said uh, about Menachem Begin in his diary because Menachem Begin was an asshole, you know? He would completely, consistently break agreements he made uh, with Jimmy Carter. He would consistently, you know, build settlements in, in, in the occupied territories. And he would consistently go back on his word. And he was uh, originally a member of the Irgun, wasn't he? Well, that's, I mean, both, you know, that's, that's, that's what makes this actually a beautiful story is that both Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat had terrorist pasts. Anwar Sadat was an admirer of Adolf Hitler. You know, he was kind of part of the anti-British underground and, you know, and Menachem Begin was the guy responsible for a terrorist bombing that what killed like 50 people at the King David Hotel. And, you know, that's the, the fascinating thing about, the rise of Menachem Begin was um, he was kind of like Israel's Reagan in that no one saw him coming. I actually have a um, textbook on, on uh, Israeli history, which was a big deal when I was growing up uh, from like ni- that was published in like 1978 for kind of American Sunday schools. And they had to like paste the page in the back because they didn't have anything about revisionist Zionism and, and Likud and the entire movement that was just as instrumental to the founding of Israel as labor Zionism, which was kind of the official liberal narrative of what liberal, what Israel was, which was basically this um, uh, kind of uh, full of kibbutzes and Israeli dancing and, and peace loving Israelis who, um, you know, uh, were reluctantly forced into conflicts with this hostile Arab world. Let's switch gears then and talk about Afghanistan if we can dig a little Mm -hmm. bit deeper into that. And one thing I want you to kind of talk to us about, and this is one of those things that like I kind of knew, but I don't think I ever registered in the back of my mind is like how um, Afghanistan's importance as this weird American cultural touchstone before the Soviet invasion. Um, That was was something. Yeah. That the the author is Christian Carroll. He's the guy who wrote strange rebels for my source for Afghanistan. So credit, credit to him. We should definitely have on the show. But like it's this, it's this pla- hippie paradise. Yeah, it's this hippie paradise where you went to smoke hashish. Um, and it's really, it's really funny when when I started reading that section of the book, I was like, oh, of course. I've I actually for a little bit, I had this weird tendency to, I would run into these people and then do long interviews with them about them sneaking into Afghanistan at the beginning of the Soviet invasion. And it was uh, like, one of them was a playwright who uh, ended up uh, using like writing a script about his experience and then kind of got turned into a movie that no one remembers that was then co-opted and turned into Rambo three. And another was a a photographer uh, that was kind of looking for adventure after Vietnam ended um, and it's, it's like Morocco. It's, yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of like, think of the Led Zeppelin song, Kashmir. I mean, that, the association, the signifier Kashmir was, here's this fun place where you can smoke, smoke hashish and, you know, take naps all day and, uh, for like $3 a day, you know? So then what is the reaction? What's the reaction and how does it, like, how does this all fit into Reagan land when there's a, the reaction the Cold War's back on, yeah. you know? This, this, this human rights nonsense. And, and Jimmy Carter feeds into this. He gives his first speech on Afghanistan. And, and by the way, uh, it is very much like Vietnam in the following sense. You guys know about, you know, Op Plan 34B, you know, in 19, late 1963 and 64, 
where Lyndon Johnson's like, we are going to patrol their harbors. We're going to send, you know, um, we're going to send patrols, you know, out of the countryside. We're basically, um, you know, just a couple scooches short of um, acts of war, you know, secretly in Vietnam. The same way uh, Jimmy Carter at the fervent prodding of um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who's, by the way, such a such a weird kind of Rambo Mankay figure that when the hostage rescue happened, he wanted to be actually in the helicopter when it landed in the desert <laughs> uh, to kind of, you know, you know, sort of, he wanted, he was like, such a gung-ho coal warrior, he um, got Jimmy Carter to sign a directive um, authorizing the CIA to undertake uh, covert action in Afghanistan, which almost certainly uh, was what helped the Soviet Union decide that they had a security threat on their hands, right? And uh, after they invade, it's, it's a total shock. Uh, it's a to- it's, it appears to be a total shock for Jimmy Carter. And he, when he gives his first speech to the nation, he says something that's very damning and not very politically smart. He basically says, I didn't realize the Soviet Union was still the Soviet Union, you know? Uh, And it sounds terribly naive. Um, And um, it destroys the SALT II negotiations, right? That and, and, and all this pressure had been building up for years on the part of very, very active organizing on the part of the new right and the part of the neoconservatives, uh, people like Scoop Jackson, who are saying that all this Ronald Reagan, who's saying that Jimmy Carter's human rights policies are basically surrendered to the Soviets. You know, the idea that dictatorships and double standards, that he doesn't care what uh, a country does if they're communists. He only is, you know, beating up on our, um, you know, our allies, you know, the Samosas, you know, or, or um, you know, the Shah of Iran, right? Um, and so when this happens, um, it's almost like a back to the future movement. It's like, you know, it's 1955 again, you know, and, uh, it's morning in America. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if we don't contain the Soviet threat, I mean, like I say, literally they're going to be, um, controlling the oil fields in Saudi Arabia and then that's it. They're going to take over the world. Right. And it kind of, um, undoes all the work that Jimmy Carter has been trying to do to make American foreign policy a different sort of thing. Uh, and as I hope to have demonstrated, it was also based on this, this set of illusions that, you know, the Soviet Union, we can re actually read the translations of uh, at the national security archive of these Kremlin meetings. And they're just as baffled they're, they're just as afraid of um, um, that Americans are making provocative uh, expansionist moves uh, in um, this traditionally, you know, the, the graveyard of empires, you know, this, this place that had been this kind of strategic crossroads for centuries. It's, I call it the fog of Cold War. It's a real tragic situation. And uh, it's just full of misunderstandings. And, you know, I, I place a lot of, I'm not the first person to place a lot of um, moral censure on Zbigniew Brzezinski. You know, I mean, talk about blowback. You know, these are the, these, these Mujahideen are basically the guys who become the Taliban and they're armed by, by us. And by the way, um, this is all in Jimmy Carter's diary. I was very surprised that he cops to this because the 
the book of the diary is, is edited, you know, it's thousands of pages, but the book is only a couple hundred pages. He says, um, we funneled weapons to the Mujahideen that CIA operatives bought in arms bazaars that were Soviet weapons. So no one would knew we were arming them. It's very Vietnam style stuff. And you know, the lesson of only four years earlier hasn't been won, hasn't been taken aboard. Carter had to deal with the Olympics too, right? <laughs> right. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? He cancels America's involvement in the Olympics. Well, there's the summer Olympics and there's the winter Olympics and they both make a fascinating part of this story. So like, you know, I'm 11 years old. I'm 10 years old, actually. I turned 11 in, in September of 1980. And the 1980 Olympics was like the biggest thing to my, in my life to that point. I was like a passionate skier. And I could tell you exactly who won the silver medal in slalom. It was Steve Mayer and his brother, Phil Mayer. And I could tell you about Eric Hyden, who was from Wisconsin, who won five speed skating medals. And of course, there was the hockey team, right? And the Soviet hockey team. Um, I found this very interesting uh, report uh, on YouTube that I put in the, my last book, Invisible Bridge, in which an ABC News reporter, this is before Runarlo took over ABC News, is talking about how tragic it is that the 1976 Winter Olympics have been turned into this um, coal proxy for the Cold War, you know, and the, how people are talking about the Soviet team and the American team as if, you know, the, who, who won, you know, was, proves that who's the, who has the best system, right? And the Soviet team by 1980 is, is just insanely dominant. And uh, there's a really nice little Disney movie about this. The American team is a bunch of scrappy, you know, bad news bears and has this coach, you know, who who, you know, basically gets all these misfits who play well together and some are from Minnesota and some are from Boston. And, and you know, this is quite remarkable just on the level of sports, but it becomes this um, absurdly huge deal, uh, you know, with, 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 you know, do you believe in miracles and American flags? And, I mean, it's like the biggest thing ever. And, you know, it's, it's uh, actually... I, I say that it's actually um, great for the political fortunes of both Ronald Reagan and the New Hampshire primary, but also Jimmy Carter against Ted Kennedy, because anything that, you know, he brings him to the White House, uh, like uh, anything that kind of, you know, rallies around the flag, you know, redounds to the benefit of the president. But then after the, um, and also these guys are training the whole time. And this question of whether um, the Soviet Union is going to respond to Jimmy Carter's announcement that America is going to boycott the Summer Olympics in Moscow by boycotting the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. Uh, so they don't even know if it's going to happen. So we do boycott. And um, the Soviets boycott the 1984 Olympics <laughs> in Los Angeles. Uh, but of course, Jimmy Carter gets, you know, no political credit for this. Um, it's seen as, you know, more symbolism. One of the problems with Jimmy Carter's political fortunes when he's president is the very things that get him elected in 1976, which is the successful creation of this um, symbolic edifice. Uh, it's seen as artifice, right? So anytime he's doing anything that seems like political artifice, he's just absolutely hammered by the press. And yeah, so this is going on. The, the, the Olympics in, in, this, in, in, in Moscow are going on like during the Democratic Convention, actually. Which is so funny because it feels like Reagan is all artifice to me. Right. That's so interesting. I mean, the villain in all my books is always the political media. Cause when you read it in retrospect, you realize how um, shallow and stupid they are. 
Um, so in this case, you know, um, the big narrative that, you know, I found documents proving was, you know, kind of um, seeded and very assiduously created uh, by the Reagan team working the refs um, is that Jimmy Carter used to be a nice guy and now he's a mean guy. And meanwhile, you know, Jimmy Carter is, you know, seething because Ronald Reagan is accusing him of, you know, starving babies, you know. And that's a huge part of the dynamic of the fall election between Reagan and Carter is Carter is champing at the bit to attack Reagan and his, his aides are telling him he can't do it because he has to preserve his reputation as the nice peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia. And finally he just boils over and, and the issue that does it is actually nuclear proliferation. So Reagan, uh, to win the Republican primary in New Hampshire uh, to come back from against George Bush, who won Iowa and was the, the, the media darling every day. He's saying something provocative to get on the front page about foreign policy. And one of the things he says is that he doesn't mind if Pakistan gets the nuclear bomb and Carter just understands how um, horrifyingly disastrous that would be. And he just kind of boils over and he attacks Reagan for the truth, right? I mean, you know, uh, as I as I always say, Carter, Jimmy Carter, you know, can't win for losing, right? And the media responds by saying, by by literally calling him out for incivility for criticizing Ronald Reagan by name. It's a very maddening part of the book. Well, in that, in this this nuclear theme recurs. I think it's during one of the debates when. Um, hmm. Right. Carter. That's, that's, yeah, it's proliferation. Yeah. 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 Uh, He says that his daughter, one of the, I think it's Amy, one of the biggest concerns that she has is nuclear proliferation. And then both the press and Reagan just pounce on that. Right. Yeah. The coverage of the 1980 debate was all drama criticism uh, and completely, just completely elided the fact that um, Reagan lied from the first to the last. And it's a real, just really damning indictment of the political media. So everyone knows the most famous line about of the 1980 debate, right? Jason, you're, you're nodding your hand. Um, I won't hold my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta sound the buzzer. That's 1984. But that, that was the exact same thing. Reagan was already, you know, completely, you know, doddering. You know, probably had Alzheimer's by then. And that was how he 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 completely got that issue off the front page. Now, in 1980, um, Jimmy Carter, um, so their whole strategy was based on getting Jimmy Jimmy Carter's whole strategy was based on um, getting Reagan on a debate stage with him, with as much time as possible for Jimmy Carter to um, fact check what Ronald Reagan was saying in order to prove, as I put it in in, in a chapter title from one of the Carter strategy memos, Carter is smarter than Reagan. And it all goes according to plan. Uh, Ronald Reagan completely makes something up, fabricates something about his record in social security claims. He'd never uh, called for it to become voluntary, but he had. And uh, Jimmy Carter accuses him of that. Ronald Reagan makes makes up a completely ridiculous just so story uh, to deny it. And Ronald Reagan, uh, he, he says these, this in these tones of how dare you wounded innocence. And Jimmy Carter's like, wow, he's rocked in his heel. So he tries again with Medicare. He says that Ronald Reagan started his political career 
1961, Campaigning Against Medicare, completely true. He made a record album for the American Medical Association saying if Medicare passes, we'll be telling our children stories of what America was like when it was free. And um, immediately, Ronald Reagan sees that he has his prey in his sights, and he gives this charming Ronald Reagan smile, and he looks the audience in the eye, and he says, there you go again. And he tells, makes up another lie and claims he'd been for one Medicare bill, but against another. It was complete fabrication. And one of my favorite little pieces of research was that Rick Hertzberg, the Carter speechwriter, told me that backstage they were high-fiving each other. They knew they'd won the debate because they, they knew that the headlines the next day would be Ronald Reagan lies about his record. Instead, the headlines were Ronald Reagan charms the nation and proves that he's not an uh, incompetent extremist, doddering old man. And that's on the press. It's so fascinating to watch. And we're seeing this play out right now as we record this um, on nine ten days after the, the Bob Woodward tapes have come out. It's fascinating to mm-hmm. watch like the political press and typical politicians like misread the moment. I think, I think mm-hmm. we're seeing that happen again. Now uh, I don't want to get into that too much because the audience will be mad at me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, do you, th- did you have trouble getting into Reagan's head at all? Like you, you're pretty good. Like you've got this great analogy about Carter that kind of recurs where he's both the engineer and the preacher. Right. Um, but I'm thinking about like Reagan in the way everyone kind of writes about Reagan is cause it's always a little bit at a remove. There's that really famous story, uh, that Edmund Morris tells, you know, the, one of his first biographers about how he had to invent a story about a personal relationship we had with Reagan that wasn't true in order to be able to write about him. Did you like, what kind of sense did you have of this person? Cause again, I just feel like he feels like he's all artifice. Well, I mean, I, I, I know something about how the, 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 the mentality of adult children's of adult children of alcoholics works. Uh, and if you look at Ronald Reagan's, the traumas of Ronald Reagan's childhood of a, you know, a family that moved, you know, like had like 20 different rented apartments by the time he was 11 and all these stories he tells that he somehow somehow manages to give happy endings. Like the time he was wandering around to the city of New York and was, was, was returned home by a hobo, you know, or the time he was playing, you know, with his friend and they found his friend's dad's rifle and, you know, shot a hole through the roof, you know, I mean, this is this is just a, a, a childhood that was, you know, one step shy of Dickensian, you know, and his mom was always off, you know, saving the world for other families, right? Um, and then you look at how um, the pictures of Ronald Reagan before he was, you know, basically 10 years old and discovered reading and s- discovered, you know, kind of heroic young adult fiction. And he looks like he's, you know, this kind of lost child. Then you see afterwards, he's clearly created this sense of himself as a hero and this is this is the period after which you can't find a picture of Ronald Reagan that he doesn't look completely aware of the camera and doesn't have this narrative in his head. You know, you realize that at a certain point, the artifice, the shell you create around the trauma is what you are, right? I mean, Nancy Reagan said she couldn't even penetrate the shell, right? There's not some kind of like core self that exists, you know, once you kind of find the magic key to get into his, you know, you know, it's a wounded being, you know, the shell is the person, right? I mean, in, in the same way with Donald Trump. It's the great line from Vonnegut. We are what we pretend to be. 
Well, yeah, and he was he was I call him the the Michael Jordan of self mythologization. I mean, exactly his ability to kind of project blithe optimism in the face of what anyone else would judge as chaos was the heart of his political appeal. And unlike his story about the guy shoveling the poop and why is he doing it? Right. There's no pony at the bottom. All right. Well, I think that that, I think that is a good place to end. The book is Ragged Land. The author is Rick Perlstein. Sir, thank you so much for coming onto the show and walking us through Reagan and Carter and a little bit of how we got where we are now. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. Thank you uh, for letting me get it out a little bit uh, late this week. We had a vet emergency here at the uh, Matthew household. Angry Planet is Matthew Galt, me, myself, Jason Fields, and Kevin Nodell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, please subscribe to our Substack. Go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com, where $9 a month will get you access to two premium episodes we've published the first two uh this most recent one was a roundtable discussion with myself and marty scovelin jr former army ranger and recruiter and pauline shanks corinne who is a uh ethics chair at the u.s naval war college we were talking about video games recruitment and the military it's a fascinating discussion uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Angry Planet Pod. We are on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Angry Planet Podcast. And uh, we will be back next week with more stories of conflict on an angry planet. We've got a lot of great uh, episodes coming up, both premium and otherwise. We've talked to Jason Wilson to get kind of a taxonomy of far right groups in America. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Nina Jankowitz, about how to lose the information war. Uh, and the next premium episode is going to be uh, 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 something about the fall of Rome and how historical parallels often fail. Thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for listening.